It's my job to tell the story of the universe using these mathematical techniques, using data that becomes available from particle physics experiments and telescopes. But at the end of the day, it's storytelling. So I am a griot. I am a griot in the way that people who are put in my position can be. I'm Michael Tamblin, CEO of Rakuten Kobo. This is Kobo in Conversation. My guest today is Dr. Chanda Prescott-Weinstein, theoretical physicist and the author of The Disordered Cosmos, A Journey into Dark Matter, Space-Time, and Dreams Deferred. She was named by Nature as one of the 10 people shaping science in 2020, and she's the co-creator of the Particles for Justice movement, which this year won her the Edward A. Boucher Award for the American Physical Society. Her book, The Disordered Cosmos, is a layperson's window into particle physics both as a set of theories and uniquely as a social practice. Science isn't just a set of laws, it's a thing that people do. It's beautiful and it's challenging and it is such a pleasure to speak with its author today, Dr. Prescott Weinstein. (laughs) Welcome to Kobo. (laughs) Thank you for having me. (laughs) Your book is Many things, a field guide to particle physics, a discussion of dark matter and its surrounding theories, the life and observations of a black woman scientist pushing through in a white Western profession. But it starts with a girl with a book on a bus. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, so the, the first chapter, I Heart Quirks, opens with me talking about talking to people on the school bus about a brief history of time the book by Stephen Hawking and I'm you know trying to convince people that quarks are interesting even though I don't really know what quarks are all I know is like kind of this like a organized table that I think appeared in the book or is listed out in the book or something like that um so I was very enthralled with the idea of the standard model of particle physics, which is really what I was trying to tell people about, even though I didn't really understand what I was talking about. But I liked the idea of it, like a lot. And, and this had begun with a, um, you know, a journey to a documentary with your mom. Yes, my mother. I think because she, I really should ask her about this. I think she thought I needed enrichment, scientific enrichment. So one Saturday morning, she insisted that we go to a matinee on the other side of Los Angeles. So I grew up in East LA and the movie, the only movie theater in town that was showing this particular um, documentary was on the West side and she could only afford a matinee. So this meant like nine, nine o'clock in the morning, we're driving across town to go see this documentary, A Brief History of Time. It's a documentary by Errol Morris about Stephen Hawking. And so that was actually a lot of people hear about Stephen Hawking for the first time, like through the book or or that kind of thing. I actually heard about the book through the documentary, which in hindsight is kind of interesting because it was very much situating the scientist in his social and professional environment. And that was kind Mm -hmm. of like my entree to theoretical physics. And so I like complained like the whole way. I was like, I don't want to go. I was probably missing X-Men cartoons, which was like my jam. It was back when like you had to be in front of the TV at a specific time in order to see the thing that you wanted to see. <laughs> and I'm, 
I was I really just complained and I was like why are we here and then halfway through the documentary Stephen Hawking was talking about solving physics at the center of a black hole and how this was a problem that remained unresolved that he had spent his career working on and that Einstein hadn't worked out and at that point I was like whoa 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 you can get paid to do math all day and do math that Einstein hasn't figured out <laughs> and I think it was as much like um you know, it was an economic calculation for me also. As as a kid from a working class household, I knew I had to have a job. And that just seemed like the best of all worlds. And so you went on a campaign then to get the book as well. Yeah, pretty much walking out of the movie theater. I was like, I have to have this book. Mom, buy me the book. Mom, buy me the book. And I should, you know, just for people to understand, I understood that this was like not a small request we had very little, like we didn't really have disposable income. And so asking my mom for books at all was like not typically a thing that I did. Um, So that was how badly I wanted it, that I just kind of overcame that barrier of like, what's normal? What's a normal request for me to even make? And I asked for, for this book and my mom was kind of like, oh, well, I don't know if you should have that book. It's for adults. And, you know, I, I was 10. <laughs> so... She thought, she actually said to me, I'm worried that you will try and read it, you won't understand it, and then you won't be interested anymore. And so my mom was really trying to protect my, my interest. Mm-hmm. And she, I think, told my uncle to get it for me for my 11th birthday, because somehow my uncle knew to get it for me for my 11th birthday. And, it, and speaking as a bookseller, you know, The Brief History Time is well known as the most purchased, least read book maybe in the history of publishing so it's so she wasn't protecting you for no reason but you got this book in hand and and as an 11 year old you you crack it open and how like how does the story of your engagement with physics go on from there because for a lot of people that would be the end (laughs) you would you know you would run into Stephen Hawking's book and then it's like then it's right back to x-men well, I was still watching X-Men, just for the record. Still, to this day, turning 40 next year, still watching X-Men. <laughs> it doesn't have to be either or, thankfully. That's Absolutely not. Can be and should be both. Can and should be both. Exactly. Somewhere in there, over sometime in the next like year or so, I, sent, I found Stephen Hawking's email address and sent an email asking how to become a theoretical physicist. So um, I was... I was very hyper-focused on like, okay, how do I make this a reality? For me, it was a practical question. It wasn't just like, oh, what are quarks? I was actually like, what is the theoretical physics? Like, what are the requirements for this job? And how do I get it? That was basically like, I wanted to know what I needed to do at that point to get the job. And so that became part of my journey as well. One of his graduate students wrote back to me and explained that I had to get a, a bachelor's degree from a top university, and then I would have to get a PhD, and then I could become a professor. And so I made a plan. And so aside from that book, what else was your what else was your reading life like? What else was your engagement with science like when, you know, kind of before you hit university? You know, I was not one of those kids who was this all like science, science, science. I, mm-hmm. I, I think that that's actually really important because I think that there is this kind of stereotype, not at all helped by the TV show Big Bang Theory, that, um, you know, people who go on to become theoretical physicists are sort of one track mind. But going into that, especially at age 10, 
I was reading a lot of Jane Austen at that point. And that was kind of, I was at a point where I was starting what, in my view, is a lifelong love affair with Jane Austen. And I was also reading the Lord of the Ring, the Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings trilogy for the first time around that time. And so I was interested in, in a lot of a lot of different things at that point, and I was I was very bookish. I also read um, Alex Haley's um, Roots for the first time around around that age. So that's that's kind of you know none of that is like oh yeah theoretical physicist. Maybe right. the, people think Lord of the Rings is theoretical physicisty, but like really like elves we don't work with them very much. There are though a, a lot of barriers that. A young girl, and and especially um, uh, a young woman of color, has to has to clear or push through in order to make it anywhere in a career in STEM. Uh, what did those barriers look like for you? I think one of the, the the major barriers for me initially was actually recognizing the barriers. One of the things that happens is that you're just kind of chugging along. And you're like, why are these things happening? Why does it seem like things are going differently than for other people who are kind of around me? Particularly if I'm like me, you don't go to a you don't go to an HBCU. So I think students who go to historically black colleges and universities actually have like a very different experience with this. Like there's a reason that Spelman, which is like a relatively small women's college, but it's a historically black women's college, is one of the top producers of black women who go on to PhDs in science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. They're having a very different experience, right? At a predominantly white institution, I was at Harvard for college. You know, I I was trying to figure out like, why does this feel different? Why does this look different? And I think like that barrier by itself is one thing. And then it, it is the things that are different. Um, the fact that I had a different class background from most of my classmates at Harvard. In my entering class of 1600, there were only three of us who were from East Los Angeles. And California is one of the biggest feeders. The Los Angeles metro area is one of the biggest feeders for Harvard. But our side of town, which people at Harvard were constantly telling me, oh, isn't that a bad neighborhood? When I when I would say I was from Los Angeles, they'd be like, oh, where are you from? And I would say East LA. And they were like, oh, I think you're not supposed to go there. And then like you talk to the other kids from Los Angeles who said they were from Los Angeles. I'm putting this in air quotes. And they would be like, yeah, I'm from Malibu. And I would be like, that's not actually LA. Like, are you guys even in LA Unified School District? Like. <laughs> there was a lot of that. So I think there were the class issues. And then there was, I had a certain political consciousness that was rooted in my identity as, as a black person um, that people just didn't get. And I felt very alienated because people didn't get it. I felt like I was seeing things that other people um, like didn't recognize because they didn't have to recognize the social phenomena. And so there's a lot of alienation and feeling very lonely. And were there... Any resources or were there any people who you drew on to help you push through some of those barriers? Were there, um, you know, was there anything that aside from your own personal resources to help you get through those? Yeah, I mean, my mother, Margaret Prescott, probably the most significant um, person, resource, source of support through that time 
I'm in, in that, like at the end of my, towards the end of my first semester of college, I called her and was like, I'm dropping out of physics. I'm switching to anthropology. I had this foolish idea. I believed in the hierarchy at that point. So I thought physics was harder, right? It's just different. I don't think it's harder. But at that point, I just thought anthropology would be easier for me to do. And frankly, that was kind of like the messaging that I was getting. Um, and my mom basically said, I did not work an evening job as a secretary so that you could stay in that magnet school just so you could quit on your dreams during your first semester. <laughs> <laughs> Not to put too fine a point on it. <laughs> no, no. I mean, my mom's, rem- I think anybody, Caribbean parents, anybody who is Caribbean parents who's listening, it was like maybe my the most Caribbean parenting moment that like I experienced in my first, I was 17. That was like my first 18 years. Um, and then, you know, interestingly, it was at some point during that first year that I picked up a copy of Carl Sagan's Cosmos. And that book ended up sustaining me in a really significant way. Um, also, and maybe people will be surprised to hear this, reading F. Scott Fitzgerald was really important. <laughs> um, so I had read The Great Gatsby in high school. I will say like I'm... You're I'm, on a book podcast, so you know, tell me more. <laughs> yeah, so... I mean, I think like the key thing that sometimes people miss about F. Scott Fitzgerald is that, yes, he was part of the milieu he was writing about, but he wrote about it very critically. Like he was just basically like, hey, everybody, look at us. We're gross. Like we're super gross. (laughs) And reading him, I was like, he's writing about the Harvard crowd. And so it was a little bit like you know, the gaslighting that I felt like I was experiencing when people were like, no, actually, the environment's perfectly fine. I was picking up these books that were almost at that point, like a century old. Definitely to me at age 17, they seem like a really long time ago. That was basically like, no, this place is basically exactly the same as it was like almost a century ago. (laughs) And that was really like, it was an anti-gaslighting technology for me. Um, So I think that that told me, okay, you, the things you are seeing, those are real. And then reading Cosmos was like, no, the Cosmos actually is great. It's just that your classes suck. (laughs) So it's almost like we need to put together a kit for people that are entering, you know, entering Harvard, which includes the anti-gaslighting, you know, literary syllabus. So you can look around and go, yep, still gross. (laughs) And just keep right on going. One thing that, struck me about your educational journey you know, through grad school and then into into a PhD is is reading about how as a scientist and especially um, a physicist's area of focus is often a matter of chance that you know, so, yes sometimes people have an all-consuming drive to study a particular branch of particle physics but sometimes it's the result of what research opportunities are available, and that sort of shoves you in a certain direction. Can you can you talk about how that played out for you? Yeah, so this is a really interesting phenomenon that I think maybe is not always well understood by the public, and definitely not families who have like budding scientists. And um, there are there are a lot of areas of physics that are not really widely discussed in popular science literature, right? Like uh, a lot of people um, know about, have heard of particle physics, have heard of cosmology. If I say condensed matter physics to you, you're like, what's that? Or, um, you know, the older word for that is solid state physics. People kind of don't know what that is. 
I think things are shifting in that I think everybody's heard of quantum information, even if like most of us can't define what exactly quantum information means. Um, so students come into graduate school, into PhD programs, excited about the things that they've heard about. And so we tend to have a, a disproportionate representation of students who are excited about doing particle physics and cosmology. Um, and, and, and astrophysics. And then within astrophysics, I think probably at this point, a lot of people are very excited about exoplanets because there have been lots of new discoveries of extrasolar planets. The reality is, is that there isn't money for all of the students who want to do that thing. And so sometimes people have to figure out, am I excited enough about being a physicist that I could be a physicist doing this other thing and not the thing that I had become attached to? And I'll be honest and say that I'm still thinking about what it means that I ended up doing the thing that I wanted to do. I'm not because people were ready to open the door for me. It was the complete opposite, right? The theoretical physicist and particle physics is considered the top of the intellectual hierarchy, the smartest of the smart, the students who are the obvious stars. And for various reasons, I was not that obvious star in college. And so students like me are discouraged from thinking that they can pursue particle physics or cosmology. Or if we're going to do it, we have to do it as experimentalists, not theorists. We're not, quote, smart enough to be theorists. And, and I'm just really stubborn. And so here I am. I, but I took an un, I had an unusual path that also involved um, changing graduate programs. I started a PhD in astronomy. I realized that I wasn't really fitting into that department, and I transferred to a PhD program in physics to work at the Perimeter Institute in Waterloo, Ontario, in Canada, which at the time was only like five years old. I ended up being their first cosmology PhD. So I was an experiment in a lot of ways, and that ended up being what I had to do in order to get to where I wanted to go because the traditional paths were not open to me. And so when people ask what you do now, you say that you are a particle cosmologist. And as, as you describe it, you use math to figure out the history of space-time. And, uh, and you are not the first cosmologist that we have had on Copone Conversation. And so should anyone want more cosmology, do listen to our conversation with Katie Mack about the end of everything. But you are the first particle cosmologist. So talk a bit about how in your area of research right now, particle physics and cosmology fit together. I guess I should say, actually, that Katie and I do very similar things. <laughs> <laughs> and she's... I'll just, you know, being me, the person who thinks about the social and the science together, I'll just comment that there's like a whole social aspect to what is the nomenclature? What are the words that we use to describe ourselves? Okay, let us know. And so, you know, Katie and I even have crossover. We both have written several papers about dark matter. I, I think that we would both say that we specialize in dark matter. And the dark matter particle that we've both written about the most is the same particle, <laughs> the axion. <laughs> um, and she ended up graduating from an astrophysics program, and I graduated from a physics program, right? So it, it's 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 just sorry. That's I'm I'm totally not answering your question, but I just had to to throw in that aside. That's great, excellent. 
Um, partly because Katie and I actually first met as prospective students at the astronomy program that I initially started my PhD in. And so it's we're we're actually interesting comparison points for like how how do these things evolve? Mm-hmm. Um, in in different ways, what we both do um, is think about how the very small, like how physics at the particle at the quantum level impacts the universe on large scales. And so I think dark matter is a really great example of how these things come together. So we think that the majority of matter content in the universe is this invisible thing that gravitates, but light goes right through it. So I'm calling it invisible. It's transparent. Unfortunately, we call it dark matter. If you remember nothing else from this podcast, dark matter is transparent. Dark matter is invisible. Light goes through it. I'm... It's, we think it's a very small thing. I'm um, like, it's, it's a subatomic scale particle, but it is so dominant in the universe that it affects how galaxies evolve. And so then we're talking about very large, what we call large scale structure. And so particle cosmology is really the bringing together of the particle physics and the cosmology. How does the evolution of space time and large structures in space time how is that affected by what happens on the small particle scale? You are also the first black woman to hold a tenure track faculty position in theoretical cosmology. But as you say in the book, you're certainly not the first black woman to be a griot of the universe. Can you expand a bit on that particular turn of phrase for me? Yeah, I think one of the challenging things about being part of the black atlantic maybe the fundamental challenging thing about being part of the black atlantic in in some global sense is that we are descendants of people who were ripped from their indigenous identities and um my, my mother was in fact born in a chattel house in barbados and so slavery really shapes our um our understanding of, of like our ancestry and our ability to connect with our ancestry. And so where the word griot comes in is griot is in um, West African communities. This person is a storyteller. This is the keeper of the stories of the community. And so I have taken on that understanding of myself even as I can't identify which of those communities my family actually hails from. Um, and and I think for me, it feels like a very um, important thing to recognize that what I do as a cosmologist is storytelling. It's my job to tell the story of the universe using these mathematical techniques, using data that becomes available from particle physics experiments and telescopes. Um, but at the end of the day, it's storytelling. And... Um, so I am a griot. I am a griot in, in the way that um, people who are put in my position can be, in some sense. There is a real interweaving in this book, because you go from talking about that role to then a very graceful pivot into a discussion of cosmic inflation and cosmic microwave background radiation, and then back to talking about how the certainty or at least supportability of these theories draw from 
the Western European accumulation of science, and that that can sometimes feel like an uncomfortable place for you. You also note that this is far from the only scientific tradition of cosmology that's available to us. And I'm wondering if you can expand on that a bit. I think there, there are a few interesting things there. One of the, the pieces is when we talk about why did Europe converge on science as we understand it, science as um, you know, a method, science as a collection of information, when you really think about part of the function of colonialism is taking from other places and aggregating and pulling things together, then it makes sense, for example, that there are going to be advances in understanding like plants. Um, I, I think plants are something that's like very easy for people to grab onto and they understand that there are different plants in different parts of the world. And then suddenly you have people, one group of people who are traveling to different parts of the world learning information from the people who are there and then taking it back and putting it all together. And then this is almost like you were doing, um, this is this is like sort of a bad analogy, but to help people kind of understand it, it's like you were doing a group assignment and then you took all the credit for all of everybody else's pieces. Like um, everybody else like gave you a piece of the group assignment and then like you wrote it up and stapled it together and just put your name on it. And everybody <laughs> hates that person. <laughs> right. And everybody hates that person, right? Yeah. Colonialism and settler colonialism and imperialism are so much worse than that, right? Because like people are dying, um, there's violence, there's the violence, there's the dispossession, there's the slavery, there's all the sexual violence. There's there's so many other layers to that. So it's just like, and but science is produced as a piece of that, right? And so it is very complicated to be like, yeah. So I'm very interested in in this information even as I am extremely grossed out by how a lot of it came together and, and how it got packaged together. I think importantly, like if you read like um, Black Panther comic books, or even if like you went to see like the, the Marvel movie, the Marvel Cinematic Universe um, edition of, of Black Panther, you imagine a scenario where people can exchange those ideas without the colonialism. And so I, I raise this up, which is to say that I don't actually think that colonialism had to be the way that this happens. And we have to hold on to that idea that there are other ways for us to learn about the universe, to learn about ourselves, learn about our world, exchange ideas, and learn new ideas that don't have to be filtered through this thing. And so part of the way that I deal with it is by thinking about that and feeling responsible for, for advancing that approach to um, how we do science and, and why we do science. And when you look at the scientific community today and different people who are practicing it from either coming from different traditions or coming from different cultural backgrounds, do you see examples of or hints of those other kinds of exchange being possible as opposed to just kind of the you know a continuation of that european accumulation model i think here i have to cite prison abolitionist maria macaba who talks about how hope is a practice <laughs> okay um, i feel cynical about it a lot particularly 
you know, as, as a member of the, the astrophysics community, one of the many different nomenclature hats I wear is sometimes people say I'm a theoretical astrophysicist, and I'm like, sure. Um, as a member of the astrophysics community, I have been on the front lines of the conversation about astronomy in Hawaii and the 30-meter telescope in Hawaii. And I'm the building of it on on Mauna Kea, which is I'm contested by indigenous people in in Hawaii who don't have formal representation in the way that some of the recognized native tribes on the continental United States have have recognition. And I have to say that that conversation and the presumption by scientists that the telescope has to be built, that the 30 meter telescope has to be built, that that's the presumption makes me really sad. Um, and that's not to say that I wouldn't benefit, like, look, the telescope images would be amazing. <laughs> like, I know that, um, I think a lot of the people who are contesting it know that, but importantly, there are other things in the world besides the, our, our curiosity and getting those, those particular astronomical images. And I don't see the scientific community shifting to an understanding that sometimes people are simply going to say no, and no is the end of the conversation. Like we're not share and clueless, great adaptation of Jane Austen's Emma, where, you know, getting the failing grade is just a starting point for negotiations. Like sometimes that's the end of negotiations and that's it. And I, I don't think that the scientific community has gotten to that point where people understand that sometimes no is the answer and we have to get there I, for, our, for our own sake. I, looking at global warming, like the fact that outside my window here in New Hampshire, we're heading into late November and there's still green outside. Like my lawn has not died even a little bit. There's been no snow. Um, what if we had said no to rapidly um, evolving a fossil fuel economy? <laughs> Role models were few and far between for you. You were well into graduate school before you spent time with a black woman who was a researcher in a field even close to yours. Um, Marcel Suarez Santos became the first black woman to earn a PhD in cosmology just a year before you, which is mind boggling to me. Um, and so where did you pull those um, those sources of inspiration from, those senses of possibility about how you wanted to chart your course within uh, the research field that you'd chosen? I think I was very lucky to grow up in a family where it was well understood that I should be able to do this. And so that just had to be... Like there was no official like law of the universe that said someone like me couldn't be a theoretical physicist. And so any barrier that was getting in the way of that was just garbage that had to be taken out <laughs> in, in some sense. I, I think I was really like it literally like never occurred to me that like this is something people like me just don't do. And you know, so when you asked me earlier about to describe barriers, that wasn't a barrier that occurred to me. And I think it is a barrier that actually ends up being the first one for a lot of people is that it just doesn't like I, I went into that documentary with the kind of mindset that allowed me to consider the possibility that I could be just like Stephen Hawking, even though there were a lot of ways in which he and I were different. Right. Um, I didn't I didn't see that difference 
as a barrier. I did see the difference and I was fine with it, right? Mm-hmm. Like I was just like, he's, he, we're just different physically. Like that's fine. We're from different countries. It's cool, whatever. Um, so I think that that mindset really served me well. Again, I think that my mom played a really big role in cheering me on and never questioning what I was doing. And I was also very lucky that my mom ensured that I never felt financially responsible for I'm taking care of other people. And so I just had to worry about my money. I didn't have to worry about other people's money. And um, that was that was an incredible gift to me that that my mother my mother gave me. Um, which like it's unfortunate that anybody has to take those things into account. But I think that that was a big piece of it. I was also very active for a long time in the National Society of Black Physicists. And so I was, as I could, finding other black people who were excited about physics. And so I was getting that mirrored back to me in in various ways. And and that was important. Science is a set of research methodologies, um, but it's also a social practice. And as you make yourself aware of doing science within a social tradition. Has that changed the way you do science or the way that you encourage the science around you to be done? I mean, like on a micro level, sometimes I have to remind myself just to do the calculation and not watch myself do the calculation. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, even like, you know, you, you asked me the question about particle cosmology and first I had to give you the answer about like the complexities of of me and Katie choosing different different words I'm sorry that's just that's what my brain does now right that's definitely a piece of it you all have like witnessed and experienced that Mm -hmm. that part of part of it um I do think that I think much more proactively now that I run my own research group, I have three graduate students. I have a postdoc. I had an undergraduate for for a while. I'm I'm much more aware of what are the social dynamics that are shaping that group. What are my responsibilities to them as junior scholars and the different identities that they bring into into the room? Um, I think I think about that in a very conscious way that I don't think. A lot of my colleagues at other institutions, I will say that my colleagues at the University of New Hampshire are are really aware and I, I love my department so much. But I don't think that that's like a norm for the field to, to think in those terms. I'm, I'm also thinking a lot, you know, in the scientific collaborations that I'm in outside of my department, outside of my research group about what are the dynamics right now i'm helping to lead a national um particle physics planning process and i'm one of three people responsible for cosmic probes of dark matter and we approached including people in the work that we are doing in a way that i think was very shaped by my understanding of social dynamics and what it means to genuinely encourage people who might feel otherwise locked out to participate um, to make sure that junior scholars are included, to make sure that women of color and men of color and queer people feel like this is a space where they can belong and do their scientific work. What have the last two years been like for you as a scientist? Because there's there's certainly one stereotype that says it's like head down, blackboard or whiteboard, you know, doing the math, being alone with your thoughts. And then there's that 
um, that idea of having other scientists around, of the collective energy that you tap into that makes universities and institutes so valuable, how was it when you got cut off from that? I went into this with a lot of advantages. So first of all, I was visiting the UC Santa Barbara Kavli Institute for Theoretical Physics at the start of the pandemic. And so I was already doing everything virtually because I was away from home base. So I was already on Zoom with my entire research group on a regular basis. And so absolutely nothing changed except um, eventually I came back to the East Coast and my sleeping schedule shifted a little bit. Um, Initially, I went into it thinking that people would behave reasonably and so we would be locked down for a few months. I'm the spouse of a public health professional. And so um, I also, unfortunately, did the back of the envelope calculation of how many people would die if we didn't take necessary precautions. And unfortunately, I got the order of magnitude right. I did it based on how many people had died in, in the Spanish flu pandemic, um, which killed my great grandfather. And so I was like actually very aware in like a very uh, familial sense of, of what the impact of these things could be. So I thought, OK, it'll be a few months. I'm going to use these few months to take advantage of not having to commute and make something out of that that extra time and getting a break from flying for the first time in my life, basically. And I was naive, as I often am. <laughs> Hopeful. Um, hopeful. <laughs> hopeful. Yes, I was hopeful, partly because, you know, I, I, I didn't think about how my sense of responsibility, even to my research group, to my graduate students who were having a very different experience with this than I was, how that would shift my emotional conditions and my sense of responsibility and having to balance between you know, I can't just have them not doing anything because actually sitting in your apartment all day not doing anything is probably not great, but also realizing that they're not going to be doing things or able to do things in the same way that they were doing them before psychologically hmm. and, and finding that balance point. And, you know, then also supporting friends who were not, don't have a spouse or don't have partners who could be be in the home with them and so who were deeply lonely there were just all of those pieces and, and that I didn't think about in terms of how it would impact me. Like I thought I just was advantaged in this situation, um, which I was. And But I also ended up doing a lot of support work. And then, of course, I didn't realize that, um, you know, so many black people were going to be killed in such horrifying ways by the police, even though, you know, Ahmaud Arbery, by the time the pandemic kicked off, had already um, been killed. Um, and so 2020 was, I don't know. I think I still went into this with a lot of advantages, but I feel tired. I feel very, very tired. I I'm, I read I'm New Hampshire Public Radio News every day, and we have between like three and 10 people dying every day in a state with fewer than 2 million people. And it's weird to get used to that. Was the book being written through? through this or were you in the in the end stages of it as uh, as this was all unfolding so i worked on the second draft of the book in february of 2020 and so i turned it in and then kind of all hell broke loose and um, things slowed down at my publisher there was a lot of like you know time dilation and, mm -hmm. and particularly you know my publisher is based in new york and what the people in new york went through i think that there's just a whole community that's traumatized just by the sound of ambulances at this point. 
Mm-hmm. I had lots of friends who were just hearing ambulances constantly. And and that's now, I can't imagine hearing an ambulance now and, and what that would evoke for, for a lot of them. I would say the other thing that was happening in 2020 that became part of the book unexpectedly was the fires in California, which I experienced tremendous amounts of grief about, continue to experience tremendous amounts of grief about. And that ultimately led to my mom um, moving out of the house I was born in. So there was this like, yeah, a lot happening that did end up did end up in the book. Although I don't think I really talk about the pandemic in the book because I, I don't I didn't even know I didn't know what to say at that point other mm-hmm. than the sucks. We had reached that stage by the time I was turning in the final thing where everybody was like, I don't I don't have anything to say about this. This is a book with a lot of facets. There is a lot of particle physics, and yet you can turn it and there is history, both history of science, history of women in science. You can turn it again and see the social science of science, and you can turn it again and see your own personal history and experience. So take me back to to when this book was first starting to form for you. Um, when did it take the shape that it did? And, and what were some of the things that you were thinking about as it first came together? I wrote the first draft. This is going to sound really obnoxious. I wrote the first draft primarily during a three-week visit at the Aspen Center for Physics in 2019. Yeah, every every writer listening to this hates you right now. So. <laughs> <laughs> and one of the reasons that it happened so quickly is that the original concept was that it was going to be an essay collection based on um, essays that I had already published that were criticizing science and talking about what wasn't working right in the scientific community. And so I, I, I was able to start for my first draft with about a quarter, not even a quarter, but like, I don't know, a good fifth of the book where I had something that I was working with. Um, the chapter, Black People Are Luminous Matter, is based on a Twitter thread that I literally like grabbed the entire Twitter thread and cut and pasted it into Scrivener <laughs> and then like wrote a chapter around it, right? I'm, I, I was very lucky, like I had like ideal conditions, like I didn't have access to good TV at that point. And um, I had a spouse who just like put water next to me when I ran out and made sure, and make sure that I eat reg- meals on a semi-regular schedule and that sort of thing. Um, so going into it, I thought it was just going to be this essay collection. And then during that time, maybe because I was at Aspen and I, we were there as part of a, a dark matter workshop, I think it was it was either cosmology or dark matter or something. Um, but I was surrounded by a bunch of particle physicists and cosmologists um, that I was realizing that like one of my dreams when I was graduating from high school was that I wanted to write my own A Brief History of Time, but I wanted to write it for East LA. I wanted to write it for the community that I came from and that maybe didn't feel seen by popular science writing or didn't think that popular science writing was for them. We didn't have independent movie theaters that showed Errol Morris documentaries in East LA. We didn't really have like a bookstore. We didn't even really have a supermarket. And that was what I had wanted to do. And I was like, how is it that I have this book deal? And that's like not what I'm doing. And so then I had planned to include like a little bit about science just to kind of like be like, and here's the science that I do too. But then it became like a really big piece. And suddenly the the book was broken into four phases. And the first phase was the science. Mm -hmm. I think in hindsight, 
if the book works, I'm going to try and be a little, try and be humble here. If the book works, part of what, part of the way that it works is that by the time you get to phase four, where I'm talking to you about black feminism and physics, and I am, you know, ending racial totalitarianism and all of these like heavy duty uh, social science aspects of it, you're feeling hype about wanting to do science in this better context because I was so stoked about science at the beginning. And I have made the case to you for why particle physics and cosmology rock. And so at the end, you're like, I don't want to get rid of particle physics. I want particle physics to be awesome in our awesome future where we are all in good relations with each other. So I think that and 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 that sounds like me. So I feel like it's a good reflection of, of me in the end. But, you know, the one thing that I will say to anybody who's thinking about like writing about this, like there are other scientists, um, I really had to write to find out that that was the story that I wanted to tell. It was not obvious to me before I sat down to write the book and, and actually format it that that was the story I wanted to tell. And I am um, thank goodness for Scrivener too. Shout out to the Scrivener people. <laughs> and I mean, you've called out over your own history you know, some of these books that really are like the pillars of popular science writing. Brief History of Time, Carl Sagan's Cosmos, like books that just kind of open up um, science, physics, cosmology for people. Had you seen anyone else out there addressing that combination of science and in either social or historical writing that gave you some guideposts for where you were going? I think because of the title of the disordered cosmos, that the the natural Carl Sagan reference point is cosmos, right? And mm -hmm. and I talked about how that was important for me. But I actually think that the most influential Carl Sagan book for this particular text was his last essay collection, Billions and Billions, which is like a deeply personal collection that is a love note to science, but it's a love note to humanity. And it's like a damn it, people get yourselves together note. Um, right. Like he's like, I'm dying, but you guys have got to get this together. And I, I think that that I wrote with billions and billions is kind of a map in some sense. And at the same time, I'm, you know, I was also thinking about Jana Levin's first book, How the Universe Got Its Spots, which I think a lot of people know her for um, her later book on, on, on black holes. But she wrote this, like, again, very personal book about being a theoretical astrophysicist that I found in a bookstore, um, like right as I was graduating from college, I think. And so I was also thinking about the way that both of those books gave me permission to say Science is a personal phenomenon, and it is a social phenomenon. Um, and then I think, you know, there were other books that are not naturally read as science books, particularly like Kiese Lehman's How to Slowly Kill Yourself and Others in America, um, where that's, it's such an incredible essay collection where he also did things that you don't expect, like even um, there's one chapter that's him exchanging letters with other people. And so I think the reason there's a letter to my mother at the end of The Disordered Cosmos is because of how to slowly kill yourself and others in America. And so, you know, when all the work is done, when you're when you're finished for the day, what do you read for fun? Uh, so 
I was actually reading Northanger Abbey by Jane Austen last night. <laughs> Excellent. I just got um, one of the, the, the Belknap Press at Harvard University Press um, annotated editions of, of, all of, of all of the novels. And so yeah. um, I decided that I wanted to do another read through because it's been a while. A novel that I read this year that just like blew me out of the water. I'm still, I'm a hardcore fiction person. Despite all of the other books that I've named, I'm a really hardcore fiction person. Caitlin Greenidge's Liberty is an absolutely phenomenal novel. Um, it just came out earlier this year and I, I was lucky enough to be in conversation with her. And so I've, I've gotten to chat with her about, about the book. Um, but that that has has been one of my top reads of the year. I'm I'm not a big fantasy person. I actually got over the Lord. Of, my dad actually took the Lord of the Rings away from me when I was like 15 because I kept reading it over and over again. And then I actually kind of think that the movies ruined it for me. So I'm like over it and not really a fantasy reader. I'm, but I picked up over um, the winter holiday last year, Tracy Dion's Legendborn and couldn't put it down, was so obsessed that I made my spouse read it. And then I would interrupt him and be like, what part are you at? Tell me what's going on. Like, I just wanted to like <laughs> re-experience the book again. And so I'm like super stoked about the second book, Bloodmarked. Um, and then I like short stories. And so I'm a huge fan of Elizabeth Crane's short stories. Um, my favorite one by Elizabeth Crane, maybe my favorite short story of all time is Star Babies. So good. You can find it online for free, actually. But it's also in, in a collection. Grab it. Perfect. Star Babies. They're so amazing. <laughs> if you had a megaphone that would reach the ear of every science-curious black kid on every bus in the world, what would you tell them? The stars are your ancestral heritage. The night sky belongs to you. Chanda, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I've been speaking with Dr. Chandra Prescott-Weinstein, author of The Disordered Cosmos, a journey into dark matter, space-time, and dreams deferred. Find it and all of the books we've spoken about, and we have spoken about many, at kobo.com conversation. Check the show notes for a link. Make sure to catch every conversation by subscribing wherever you listen. Kobo Conversation is produced by Nathan Maharaj and hosted by me, Michael Tamlin. Thank you for listening.